Ladies and gentlemen, our next speaker is, um, in fact, a journalist, a novelist, a short story writer, and uh, winner of the Orange Prize for Fiction. Um, a very warm welcome, please, to Lionel Schreiber. We, um, we talked about the NHS um, a couple of years ago, and you said to me, we didn't have these conversations, these important conversations, when there was the time. Not you and I, but the public. Um, why don't we have these conversations? They're pressing conversations, sure, they're troubled, and here we've talked about the content of them, but there's a real reluctance to engage on these conversations Really? Um, there's obviously a nostalgia for when medicine was simpler. Ironically, I think there's a, there's a nostalgia f for when medicine could do less. <laughs> and that's, real, that's the real crisis in healthcare, and I speak in, uh, about all of us in both our countries. Uh, medicine has become too capable and that makes it very expensive and very confusing and it also throws a, a throws on the patient choices that the patient doesn't want to make I mean there is that traditional paternalistic relationship with the doctor and the doctor knows everything and is going to take care of you and will tell you what to do Increasingly, there, are, there is a panoply of choice as to how to treat a given condition. And the doctor throws it back at the patient. And patients don't want this. Patients, you hear all this about patient choice. Patients want choice. No, they don't want choice. When you're ill, you want to be told what to do. I'm not going to be the doctor that tells you what to do. <laughs> you have no idea how it would change with a diagnosis. Yes, quite, and I think that's true of most doctors as well, really. Yet, yet I mean, this, I, this kind of um, reluctance to engage in this discussion, in, your, in, your, in Big Brother, your most recent novel, one of, your, one of the characters, one of the minor characters, um, champions the idea almost of... Deceit. It says, you know, self-deceit is what makes life bearable. Uh, don't you forget the right to lie to yourself is what makes this a free country. <laughs> Chiding someone for wanting too much reality, almost. Oh, yes, as a matter of fact, you, um, you just gave me the um, Smile or Die book. Have any of you read yes. that? It's this Barbara Ehrenreich Aaron, book. Yeah which is all about Americans lying to themselves in vast quantity. And um, it's this positive thinking movement, which has gone from uh, religious circles to corporate ones. And essentially, uh, people who are unhappy and underemployed or unemployed and impoverished are all being told that if they get their minds right, they can ha everything will come to them. 
And it's a, it's a really wicked uh, kind of um, mental, it's worse, than a, it's worse than the lottery. It's essentially a way of turning things around and that everything that happens to you that's bad is your fault. Mm -hmm. And the drive to be optimistic and you see it all the time and, you know... You, you it's know. nauseating. Yeah. And it's real. It's real. I mean, she's talking about something that is part of the texture of American society. I mean, when you, uh, when you meet Americans, they have a certain aura. <laughs> I hope I've, I've got enough uh, grumpiness and cynicism to have worn some of it off. But that sunniness that you, you can recognize from across the street... The smiling, I mean, that's one of the things, she, that's why it's in the title. The yes. eagerness, the desire to please, the not wanting to be a problem. Um, that's, it's become part of the American persona. And it, that, I mean, a lot of people in the audience will recognize as health professionals actually finding it very hard to rationally state negative things, for example, around the NHS for fear of being branded you know, a kind of whinging pessimist. So it becomes very hard not to relentlessly do the smiling brigade thing. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. You've been described in an interview where well, you've said, in fact, I'm a relentlessly pissed off person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'll mind me reminding you of this, but I think being pissed off makes me happy. Sounds like me. <laughs> and presumably that's because, in fact, you're... I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I hope I'm not mis misrepresenting this, but in a sense, the delusion of the kind of relentlessly pissed off person as opposed to the reality, just the reality of having to contend with things in fact as they are. Well, I think that one of the hardest things about being a doctor and what I do not envy is telling people what they don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. And it must be terribly tempting to change the content of the message just a little bit to make it more palatable. Nobody wants to hear, you're going to die, and probably sooner rather than later, and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, it it's too brutal. And they're all, you know, that's, maybe that's the most brutal, but there are plenty of other things that, messages that doctors need to deliver that, that patients don't want to hear. And I know in my own life that I find it hard to send an email just turning someone down that they want me to do something. Mm. And that's, you know, that's nothing. Mm. Um, you're, you're telling people things that are going to hugely alter their lives or, or, or end their lives. And I think uh, one of the areas where doctors are now under pressure to lie to their patients has to do with obesity, mm -hmm. which is my most recently, recent material in yes. Big Brother. And you know, there has been this discussion about whether or not doctors are supposed to be using the word obesity, much less the word fat. And that's become you know, the, you know, the, the, the F word of, uh, of medicine. And I, I, am, I would resist this kind of uh, condescending evasion of responsibility. I would use the F word. I'd, I'd, I think coming up with some um, euphemism, some euphemism mm. doesn't change it. Once I, I actually I talked to somebody yesterday who claims that they now I, you'll have to confirm this. They now use the word habitus. <laughs> it's a stupid little word that is a code 
for too fat on the on the uh, uh, on the on a patient's records because they don't want to hurt the patient's feelings. But if you really want the patient to lose weight, they have to realize they're overweight in the first place. Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think that kind of code infuses all of medicine. So we find ourselves, I'll find myself saying, <clears throat> the gentleman in bed four has a bulky disease, a low albumin, his performance status four, and now going into a terminal decline, mm. rather than he is dying. And, and my description sounds like something off Star Trek, doesn't it? <laughs> it's not, it's describing a spaceship not a human being and it, that kind of code terminal decline um, that reluctance to engage really is happening on the, on, the, on the personal level in a consultation and of course on a national level as well in our last discussion so, that, so there's a real film that separates us from the it's interesting your recent I just wonder if it's a bit more than denial I wonder if there's something and Ray Tallis is alluding to celebrity culture that makes us gravitate towards and celebrate the glamorous and the beautiful um, as more meaningful. And you're, I'm just conscious of your, one of your short stories recently um, that, was, that was shortlisted for the BBC Short Story Award where a woman's husband died on 9-11, 2001. He didn't die as a result of the terrorist attacks. He died in a completely separate, in fact, act of heroism. Yet his death and you make the very, um, you know, you beautifully describe in a short paragraph how many people were dying on that day mm. in America. Yet, the death was somehow less meaningful because it wasn't part of an event which no one would take the tragedy away from. Yet there was something uh, iconic and stated about the event that meant the deaths were more meaningful. Well, we do seem to compulsively uh, order order death, order people, for that matter. I mean, that, that, that's, we don't think of people as all equal. And one of the, even if we should, and one of the most admirable things about the NHS conceptually is trying to tr treat all lives as equally valuable. And, and you know, I don't, in, in my country, we don't do it that way. There, there's not even that conceit so that uh, you know, if you come into a hospital and you're not insured, they don't want to treat you. They're they, they have to treat you if it's an absolute emergency. But even if they treat you for an emergency, they will not have. They're not required to do any follow-up treatment once the the emergency is over because you don't have insurance. You are not as valuable, and your problems are not important because you 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 are not covered. And uh, I think. Sadly, one of the things that's happening here is, is that hierarchy is starting to slip into the system, you know, as, as more and more patients who have means go private. I mean, on, honestly, I'm not sure I should be uh, going public on this point because it's my business, but it rather broke my heart about a year ago to finally break down and buy some private health insurance in this country. And uh, maybe, I mean, it's not that I, I don't read the Daily Mail, but you know the Daily Telegraph is almost as bad, especially on the NHS. Um, and I, it was just, part of it is that for an American, uh, private health insurance here is so cheap that it, it just seemed like, how can I resist this bargain? But I, 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 I also think it was just, that was expressive of a slippage 
of my faith that everyone will both be treated the same and well. And I, I, I thought, well, you know, I, I am a member of the more privileged stratum of this society. I should probably just give myself a little bit of a... An edge. A, a little edge to get myself, if, if, if need be, and, I, and if I continue to bicycle in London, need will be. <laughs> and I, you know, but I, I felt a little falling. Yes. It made me feel a little creepy. Yeah. And, and I thought, you know, oh, this is, this is a, one more step in uh, embracing uh, uh, it, 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 the status of, of, of an elite and entering this other class that expects to be treated differently. And it's such an anathema to the best of this country's health system. Well, I'm, in which case, I'm just going to turn this off now. And, um, let's talk about that. So what, may I ask, without necessarily you having to reveal your, um, personally why you did that, what was the prompt to, given your very clear you know, applause for a sort of equitable health care service, what prompted the, the, it couldn't have just been a bargain that made you think, I must grab that. Oh, you, must you don't underestimate the, need the power for a bargain. of a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> was there something about what you were hearing about the National Health Service or the content of the news that made you think, actually, there are genuine concerns there, I need to get some... Yes, it was a sense of waiting lists beginning to creep up again. Yes. And that if I needed uh, care about something quickly, then I would need that private health insurance edge. Um, and the equity of care, this issue of... Uh, sort the of almost... encounters that I had had uh, recently in my local clinic uh, were that they were not interested in my problems yes. because they were too small. They right. weren't life-threatening. Right. They were simply uh, matters of quality of life for me. And uh, I noticed a lack of interest in those issues. Yes. And is there at all a sense, I mean, we talked about this before, and some of the, some of the shocking failures of care which have been visible, um, for example, now, we've talked about this a lot this weekend, um, mid-staffs and the... Um, the kind of, you know, the inhumanity of care that's become very public. Now, you and I have talked about how that might have arisen and tried to understand it, which has gleaned some of an adversity of response because it's felt, you know, beyond understanding. But has that, did that worry you? Did you think, actually, were I to end up in hospital, I would be cared for badly? Yes, and I'm, I, I can't quite pinpoint it. Uh, certainly on, on an emergency level, I, had, uh, I haven't had much experience with it, but what little I have had uh, w with any departments here, that they've been very competent and better than competent and, uh, and, uh, and treated me well. Hmm. Uh, I, do, I honestly do think there has been an increase in the media noise about the NHS with various little shrill scandals punctuated by a general impression that things were simply not under control any longer. Mm. Mm. And that you, even if you were going to get treated, you were going to have to wait a long time, and sometimes that makes a big difference. Uh, there is definitely a, 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 a sense of 
of the NHS quietly falling apart. Mm. And that's just me reading the newspaper. And you people know the reality of it much, much better than I do. But as a journalist then, <clears throat> and some of the questions that were coming up earlier on was around how genuinely the media represents the complexities of the truth. Is there a sense that, do you get a sense that the media are much more in pursuit of a good story on this than the truth and in a way are inflaming it? Or in fact, is the reporting as various and any, as any of our opinions? Well, they're clearly, uh, they love running scare stories. Mm. And with something like the Daily Telegraph, for example, they're always playing to uh, an older audience. Mm. And we do, I mean, I'm curious about the demographic time bomb being a complete lie. I'm going to have to research this. Um, but that's, we'll come back you're to the dealing answer. with, yeah, I'd be, love to be informed about that. <laughs> Um, but we are we we do have a growing number a growing population that is either before the, the geriatric care and therefore thinking of it aware of it or entering it and so there is a large uh, population that's very frightened very very frightened and 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 it it is. Uh, impossible to separate, at that point, the NHS and the uh, uh, assisted living and nursing home care in this country, which is not quite as expensive as the United States, but it's getting there. And uh, so people are, are, are multiply frightened. They, they, they read all these horror stories about care homes and imagine themselves or their loved one uh, you know, spending the day in their own feces. I mean, what what people even my age and 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 older are starting to anguish about is what's going to happen. What's going to happen financially? Uh, to what what savings you may have put together, and what's going? How are you going to be treated? I mean, it's it's especially the elderly cohort that is anxious about perhaps being treated equally and badly. And that's no comfort. Everyone gets to be treated like shit. <laughs> I think that's really, so I'm very incredibly grateful actually and completely unsurprised by your honesty on this. I'm going to come back to this if I may and I'm just going to sidestep to the Big Brother book because I think there's a connection here. In, in that, um, to me, that's less a book about obesity than it is about appetite, personal appetite and societal appetite and the ways in which we try, in fact, to satiate this. Mm. And at one point in the book, in fact, which interests me with regards to what you've just said, I'm just going to quote you here. You talk about the baffling lassitude of affluence and that satiety is, in fact, worse than disappointment. Um, the end of the book, which is a book, of, a, if, if I may summarise it, a, a woman and her morbidly obese, previously once very privileged and accomplished brother, um, and her journey through his, with him, through trying to somehow recover this. But in fact ends with the, the sentence at least, her, her recognition is that we are meant to be hungry. Mm. Um, 
how do you square that? On the you know, because I, I read that as you believing that you you, know, you you well you more than believe that. I understand you have one meal a day. Is that mm. that's true? So there's a sense that you recognise the um, the person value of being hungry, unsatiated in a in a world that's increasingly fulfilling its cravings. That's that is a view of yours, isn't it? A social view. Yeah, I mean, sometimes my books actually express something that I think. Um, well, given that, I, I, it, it is—it's in some ways subtle because uh, it, it's it, it, what's being put forward is in some ways anti-Zen because you know the Buddha is about uh, not wanting anything; it is about the denial of desire. Uh, whereas I. I celebrate desire. The sensation of desire, I think, is energizing and gives you a sense of direction and purpose. And this is all desires, uh, from desire for career success to desire for a cheese sandwich. And it, 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 is, it gives you a, a, a direction. It fills the day. <laughs> and a little, you know, I, when I do events like this, for example, I, I never eat beforehand. I always like a little edge on me. I've actually talked to some other people who do this kind of thing with some frequency, and they've said exactly the same thing, that, that eating makes you a little thick, you know? <laughs> a little stupid and a little dull. It takes the edge off. And I, th I honestly think that there is something to the celebration of desire itself. The trouble is that we live in this heavily commercial world and it is not in, the, the advertising helps to create desire, but the promise is not in celebrating the desire, the, the promise is in sating it. You know, that's the only way they're going to make any money. You get the cheese sandwich, in fact, you get five cheese sandwiches, and they're enormous. Um, so, so the culture celebrates uh, oversatiation. And in fact, what, in my personal view, what makes people happy is, is that little edge I'm talking about, having a sense of energy, having a sense of purpose. One of the hardest things for me about having become more successful in my career in recent years, is, is it, it induces that kind of slight thickness and stupor that I'm talking about when you have a meal. You don't want to be that way. And that sense of arrival is a drag. To me, arrival is when you die. And I, I, how this fits into the obesity thing, I'm not quite sure. Mm. But somehow we have to get across to people that there's nothing wrong with being hungry, mm. that they're not going to die, and and in fact you can function and feel hungry. That hunger is an, a surprisingly mild physical sensation. You can almost not call it pain. Uh, and and it's good to get hungry. I don't understand how people eat three meals a day and little cakes with their tea, just because they never get hungry. And maybe we need to celebrate that on, on a range of levels, is the experience of appetite. Hmm. Well, given that then, 
So given, given and I agree with you, I'm, I, I'd never manage it, but I agree with you, is, is that there's a, there's a wider sense in which society is, not, is in need, is, is perpetually fixing its appetite in a number of ways. So consumerism does it, celebrity culture does it. It surprises me, and genuinely I'm not calling into account what you have done other than inevitably I'm using it to, to mirror here. It, how do you square that with um, the ready fix of private insurance over and above a, a more perhaps societally hungry, um, unfixed, imperfect, yet necessary national health service? I don't understand that question at all. <laughs> well, it just seems to me that... Somehow it's uh, putting two things together. Um, do you s we'll see if private health insurance is a ready fix. I've never made a claim. Um, as far as the NHS is concerned, I, I would probably see it uh, offer to fix fewer things and do that well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, uh, you, you may be offering too many products. A, a really solid core service right. is probably more valuable in the long run than one that, that offers uh, everything, including, you know, I would probably not, say, do uh, fertility treatments. Of course, I'm famously anti-motherhood anyway. Um, just because it's, it's expensive, uh, it's, it's meeting a, a desire, an appetite, and not a, uh, not a disease, not an injury. It's a personal lack, but it's not a, actually a physical, uh, it's not, it's not going to kill you, not having a kid however it feels. And I know that there's a cruelty to that kind of decision. But I, I do think that, that, that the NHS probably has to get out of the business of desire. And that even includes sex exchange operations, which again, yes, maybe in the perfect world, you would like to be able to meet that desire. But I, whatever, whatever the de demographics are, we're certainly dealing with a finite size pie, and the cost of healthcare is going up all over the world. Mm. And we have to, we, this service, in order to remain viable, needs to be clear on what it doesn't do mm. as well as what it does. And I couldn't agree more. The difficulty we're having uh, in this room is working out what that is. Yes. Um, and so yesterday, you know, the, the contention was floated a few times. If I had 150,000 pounds, would I pay for another consultant oncologist? Would I pay for a number of uh, music therapists? You know, it's making those kind of utilitarian judgments. It doesn't seem to be happening in a way that a lot of people feel is rational at any point in the health service. And. It's a real problem, and you, you know. Well, of course, uh, especially it's a p political, popular problem because nobody uh, in this, uh, among the citizenry wants to be told what they cannot have, and that's what the, all the um, hostility toward nice has been about. <laughs> so it's like, what do you mean? We've been paying into this system all this time. I want every if I get cancer, I want to have every drug drug available. <laughs> 
And uh, I don't want to hear about your studies and how, you know, eight out of ten people are not going to be helped by that drug whatsoever. I might be one of those two. And that's inevitably going to be the perspective of the individual citizen. I think where the NHS has a huge advantage over the uh, mess in the United States is that you are capable of making these large global decisions. Um, if I may sh share with you, my, my father is gravely ill and he's almost 86 and he's going through chemotherapy which is extremely expensive and I, I doubt he will survive. Now, my mother is incapable of making the decision not to put him on those drugs. She can't do it emotionally, and it's totally unreasonable to expect her to, to. If you give her the opportunity, she will do whatever she can to keep her husband of 60 years alive. But the NHS has the institutional power to say, listen, I know you don't want to hear this, but it doesn't look good. And we as an institution have decided that both in terms of sparing your husband's suffering and also, to be frank, sparing us expense which we do not believe will be fruitful, we've decided to go for palliative care instead. Now, Sloan Kettering in New York can't do that and won't do that and it's not in their interest to do that because they're making a fortune off of my father. And who knows, it's possible that my own pessimism will be misplaced and he'll come out the other side and have five or ten years more productive life and I'll feel sheepish for having been so doubtful. But that's the least likely outcome. And I'm envious of your system in this case because I think that palliative care would be kinder, and I also think it would be economically, medically more intelligent. And that's where I, I think you really need to hold fast to a national system and not split off into the private health care and, and then the, the sad little people who are left get cared for by the, the NHS. because. That's a way of inducing a kind of rationality into the system, which you don't have yet, but there, there, there is an attempt at it. And that, that, that could be the envy of the world, I mean, especially before NICE was defanged. It was studied by countries everywhere as a model for how to intelligently ration healthcare. You know, the R word is, you can't say that in the United States. but. What, what we were talking about earlier, about how much is now possible. We have to ration health care. And we ration all resources to some degree, so there's no reason why, should that, why ration should be a, a dirty word. I agree very much. The difficulty is, and you know, that your envy may be slightly misplaced. And although I imagine we're very, I imagine there is a real distinction. I probably have a states. fantasy version of. No, well, I, I, I think it feels different already. I, but I imagine there's, there is a big, there's an ocean of difference between Sloan Kettering and what um, we would experience here. But it is becoming increasingly difficult, certainly, to have a conversation based on 
um, funding constraints with a patient, and indeed increasingly on age or frailty, these words um, are seen as prejudiced and pejorative rather than actually real, i.e. recognising human mortality and finitude. Um, finally, I just before we ask some questions on, on this, we've talked before about what, and yesterday this came up very much, um, what it is that caring for um, patients who are suffering, ill, uh, and sometimes in really unpleasant circumstances can do to the health professional. And without in any way uh, at all condoning bad care, how it is that actually, unless we actually honestly appraise those difficulties, really understand what it can be like for health professionals, it mightn't be a surprise, I say this very guardedly, that events such as mid-staffs do happen. But of course, the difficulty is in saying that even really is very hard. It's seen as condoning and, and lazy. But in the, in the book, there's a point in which Pandora is having to um, flush out this feces-laden toilet and bathroom of uh, Edison's. And it really brought that to mind for me. I was thinking, oh, this is what she's having to do here is completely abhorrent and awful for her. And yet, to maintain a love for her brother at the same time is a challenge. Well, I mean, that's a scene in which she's, a, she's being a nurse. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. I do think that we, ha we, we have to be a little easier on doctors um, who are people who have their limits. And this whole uh, idolization of the doctor must be terribly unpleasant for the doctor, him or herself, because you're never going to live up to that. It's just setting yourself up for a for for being a terrible disappointment. Um, and and I think that's where a, a lot of the news stories are getting their energy because it's that bitterness that you're stirring. You, you let us down. We looked up to you. You were going to take care of us and. Now it turns out you're cold-hearted and, and uh, cruel, even. Somehow there has to be, you know, you have to carve out a, a, a cliché in the middle, which is fairer, because doctors aren't superheroes. I am sure that dealing with people who are very ill takes a terrible emotional toll. And there is a way in which you must have to shut yourself off from it somewhat, or you just couldn't sleep at night. And I, I don't think we should uh, give doctors a hard time for developing a little bit of self-protection. And I, I think it's impressive that there aren't, there aren't more horror stories than there are. The ones that... Uh, hit the papers, get huge amounts of play. But I do think that most of the NHS doctors, I've had anything to do with some that I've met here, others I've met in clinical circumstances, have been remarkably attentive and kind and decent. And 
I wouldn't want them to always have to take their work home with them. And I, I, I just think we have to stop holding doctors up to this ridiculous, you know, Marcus Welby, MD standard. Did you watch that here? <laughs> it's an American no, but we can show. imagine it. Yeah. Um, can we have the house lights up, please? <clears throat> oh, by the way, I was just going to add. I think that fiction and television and films might have a role in this because uh, it's the creative media which often perpetuate this version of the doctor. We have a number of uh, questions and time for many of them. In fact, um, just here, Sean Ellion. And then, yeah. Can you, is the microphone working? Okay. Hello, yeah. I'd, I'd echo the request to um, treat doctors more kindly and extend it to treat nurses more kindly. And just mm. ask how we find the voice to hold people to account for bad care, but also celebrate good care, of which I think there is an extraordinary amount going on across the NHS. Yeah. Well, that's just the, like that classic, you know, you don't, you don't ever read good news and only bad. And nobody wants to read newspaper articles about, you know, nurse stays five hours late to take care of, you know, granny, um, and read her bedtime stories. I mean, that's just not, it's not interesting. So I, mean, I think that's, that's probably a difficulty in almost any profession that does get press, is it's, it's only the outliers, the negative outliers, who are gonna get any attention. Who's got the microphone? To the back there, and then if we can bring it down the front, thank you. Um, I, is, is that the right place to hear it? Yes, I, I agree, Lionel, with your, uh, need to rationalise healthcare in some way, and that must be something for public discourse too. May I state through many personal friendships that those who seek gender, you said reassignment, I would say gender confirmation surgery, do not have a choice. There's absolutely no choice in that whatsoever. And may I ask you perhaps to research it and write about it, because people who, under, who are born with this awful condition live with a great deal of prejudice. Thank you. Okay, I was just throwing that out there as a possible example, and it's not a possible example. People in that those well, circumstances I mean, have uh, absolutely no choice in their seeking treatment. Fair enough. Thank it's you. not my field. Who's got the microphone? Uh, can I just um, ask you a question about the issue of having this sort of panoply of desires and all, all kinds of new ways to fulfill those desires. And I'm, using, I'm doing that around fulfill. Um, is part of the problem now, and I guess it's a big question, is part of the problem that we, we are, we've lacked, we lack an ability to be analytical or critical about what it is that we want. Mm. So, the, so if, you, if we take a medical example, um, you mentioned fertility treatment, and I've read um, interviews and case studies where I'm totally shocked by the reasons people give. And they say things like, well, you know. Give for what? It, for seeking fertility treatment. And I know I'll get hacked for this too, but there are people who say they, they give reasons, which is it's a biological imperative, or well, everyone's just done this, and people expect me to be a mother at some point. And they're very uncritical of what it is, why they are seeking certain things, or why they have certain desires. Well, I think broadly, we're uh, constantly 
trying to satisfy one desire with the wrong quantity, right? And food is the most commonplace example of that, that you, you end up, you know that free-floating sense of dissatisfaction and you find yourself w with an open refrigerator door, <laughs> right? And you're not actually hungry, but there's something, there's just this feeling of something and it's hard to put your finger on. And maybe, you know, if you pushed yourself, you could realize you're a little lonely or unfocused and need to get to work on something else or, um, you know, who knows what it is. And maybe it is hard to define. Maybe it's impossible to define. But uh, advertising is often all about this bait and switch so that you are being told that if you buy a new car, then you will find love, right? Because, look, the babe is in the car. Yeah, and, and and that and and I, I I think that's with something like fertility treatment, that's a very important thing to to parse be, be, before you encourage people to pursue it, because they may be trying to. Well, there's a there's an uh, there's a line in uh, Big Brother uh, where the the narrator accuses her brother of. Uh, trying trying to fill the bathtub by turning on the taps in the sink. And no matter how full on you turn the taps in the sink, you're not going to fill the bathtub. And I think that's that's what we do with a lot of desire. It's 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 misrooted. And and that that is why it's it you know, people buy virtually infinite amount of stuff because what they need is not stuff. You know, what they need is a sense of meaning in their lives. But that's impossible to go out and buy, so they just keep buying more stuff. Uh, or people will eat when they're really lonely or suffering from some kind of lack of self-regard. Uh, and it, it, these are very difficult problems to fix because as long as you're trying to do the wrong, you're trying to satisfy one desire with the wrong quantity. You can do it in infinitely and indefinitely. We have a question at the top, I think. Someone has a microphone. I was wondering, I was wondering uh, what would happen to the health service if everybody just cancelled their private health insurance. Hmm. I just get the impression that I did something <laughs> evil. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Yes, quite. Actually, should we? No, we won't. Well. <laughs> I don't think we want to open that box. Well, we can leave that as rhetorical, but it is an interesting, it is an interesting question. Because the, exi the very existence of private health insurance and the fact that it is so affordable here right now um, means that it takes some of the pressure off the government. One last question, please. Who, anyone have the microphone? Is it on? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, you talked a bit about the kind of in your book um, up here. Wave. Oh, thank you. Um, you talked a bit about the kind of how the challenges of nursing for someone, um, kind of what kind of challenges that poses for someone, um, and that similarly in the kind of some of the deficits in care. 
um, in the mid-staffs were kind of around nursing. And I was wondering whether um, maybe there's a problem in the way that people are paid and that maybe that kind of care is undervalued um, but because we as doctors have been trained for longer and we kind of have a more intellectual perspective that we somehow see that we deserve to be paid more and maybe that kind of that inequality in the caring kind of structure of the NHS is partly to blame for some of the things that we've seen going on. Well, that's not exactly my field, but... Uh, Do we remunerate what's valuable? I, I, I'm not sure that money quite stands in for what nurses miss, which is surely a level of regard and respect and admiration that doctors get and they don't. And that's been the case my whole life. I know that before Tony Blair came in, the wages for nurses were appalling, you know, like seven or eight thousand pounds. And, you know, the labor did enormously raise nursing remuneration. But I'm not sure it's really fixed the problem. And maybe this is part of that. Not that they didn't deserve to be paid more, and, I, and I'm pleased that they're their salaries have been increased. But it may also be an example of uh, trying to fill the bathtub with the sink tap because I think what nurses may be missing at this point, even more than a more generous pay packet, is a sense that from their colleagues and from the system and perhaps even from the patients, though I think that's probably where they get the most reward, uh, that, that what they're doing is is important. Thank you. I think we should end on that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, a very uh, big round of applause for Lionel Sanders.